Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 145 being recorded on Wednesday, September 5th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We're sitting here in early September and thought we would update you guys on some e-commerce news in between our releases of some great guests that we had uh, when we were at Etel East. Uh, and Jason, I want to start off. You had a tweet, and I didn't understand really what you were talking about. So, and you're a little grumpy. You're usually a happy tweeter. So, I wanted to pick your brain on this one. So, the, the tweet says, uh, I am so tired of talking about the ROI of AI based personalization. Client, quote, What's the ROI of painting my house? Me. It depends. Is your last paint job one day old or 10 day old? What color do you want to paint it? End quote. Yeah. Unseen. <laughs> So tell us, what uh, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. So first of all, I've been watching my Twitter analytics, and it turns out that when I'm cranky and I just rant about something that annoys me in the moment, it gets way more engagement than the like super thoughtful, uh, well-prepared tweets that I do. So now I'm just, I've just decided to try to be cranky Jason. So that's what that's really all about. So it's not a, uh, it's not a, a fake account. It's really you. It, it's the real me. Although uh, you did call me out, my my son did do some tweeting earlier this week, and you correctly identified that too, uh, which is pretty funny. I think it was like left parentheses, right brace at e. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, here? it was either my three year old or the president of the United States. One of those two, probably. <laughs> uh, but like, so that I think what happened there, and this comes up a lot, um, and people are super well intentioned. But like a client will reach out and they're trying to sell some initiative internally. Like, hey, we really want to do this new AI personalization initiative um, and we need to pitch it to our, our senior executive or our board of directors or whomever. And so I get all these well-meaning queries. Uh, what's the ROI of AI-based personalization? And uh, I get why they're asking the question, but it's an unanswerable question in my mind because A... AI-based personalization is a tactic. Like you, you could do it well, and it could generate a way better customer experience that had a huge improvement. Or you could do it super poorly um, and have a negative experience and have it, you know, have a a negative return. Um, and the, it's it's not a binary thing where you weren't doing personalization before and now you are, right? So you know, everyone's starting state and end state are wildly different. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, I think you, you slightly misread my quote. Like, uh, if you ask what the ROI of painting your house is, like, the first thing I want to know is, is your last paint job a day old or is it 10 years old, right? Because if you currently have a really crappy paint job, the ROI is probably higher for uh, repainting it than if, you know, you have a super fresh paint job. And are you going to sell your house right away? Because then there's going to be a monetizable value for painting it. If you're planning on living in the house for 10 more years, the the return is going to have to be your personal satisfaction from that improved curb appeal. And are you going to have a four-year-old repaint it or are you going to have professional painters repaint it? Because that's going to dramatically affect the outcome that's going to uh, uh, 
influence that return. And so uh, I guess I'm uh, I was just slightly ranting that people want this super simple number. And, you know, if you Google ROI on AI based personalization, you're going to get some like uh, BCG report that says uh, that you'll get an 11 percent lift if you do AI based personalization. Nice. And so that's, you know, I it, obviously totally absurd, but lots of people, you know, go to their board of directors and say, hey, we're implementing this new tool because BCG says we'll get 11 percent more sales. Maybe it would make you less cranky if you just said 11 percent. Yes, uh, that's exactly what the poor account manager that asked me the question wanted from me. <laughs> they just wanted that, that BCG study. Uh, and instead, I gave them a, a stupid metaphor about a house, and then I outed them on Twitter. <laughs> Sorry, I love that. And now hopefully they don't listen to the podcast because they can get a double dose. E- exactly. Cool. Well, I guess we should move on. Hopefully, uh, uh, Hopefully they weren't listening. It wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without amazon news your margin is their opportunity well it happened uh, a little bit last week and some this week amazon is flirting with a trillion dollar market cap we've been kind of watching this race here on the jason and scott show for a while uh, apple has been pretty squarely in the trillion dollar club now for about a month um, it's it's kind of flirting with 1.1 trillion, and I'm sure um, with some new iPhones that are on tap, we'll talk about in a minute uh, that that will further cement that. Um, but Amazon, when their stock price gets over, uh, it's right around 2,000. I think it's 2,005 or seven or 10, something like that. Right around just over 2,000, uh, it gets into the trillion dollar mark. So it's it's been flirting with it. It's closed over in a couple of days as we're recording this. It's underneath it, um, and. You know, I think uh, who knows when they announce Q3 results, we may see it kind of stay there if they have a, a solid Q3. So uh, I was thinking, um, I have to go back and look at our holiday uh, guesses. I was thinking Amazon will get there first, but Apple beat them. Um, but it is interesting now that we have these two companies in the, you know, kind of in the trillion dollar club. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I saw, uh, I don't know that it's meaningful in any way, but I saw this pretty funny analysis uh, today on um, that, like uh, Jeff Bezos' personal net worth has increased sixty-seven billion dollars this year as a result of that that stock climb. So that's eight million dollars an hour that his net worth has increased. Yeah, and there's all these, uh, you know, so there's a lot of politics now, kind of surrounding uh, Amazon, and there's all these folks that say, you know, Jeff Bezos, they kind of take his net worth and divide it by hours or something like yeah. <laughs> some of the stuff's done. And they're like, he makes $8 million a second and he pays his workers $5 an hour. Uh, all that stuff's kind of hooey because, you know, Jeff Bezos has put all his capital at risk and he sells very little Amazon stock. So it's all paper money until he sells it. So, yeah, I mean, he I mostly know, only sells stock for rocket fuel, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Most of it. Uh, or if he's going to buy a newspaper, yeah, like a newspaper. <laughs> like the Washington, like the Washington Post. Yeah, a lot of newspapers, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so that that's uh, interesting to see, uh, you know, Apple and Amazon, they're uh, right in that trillion dollar club. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it would be interesting to see, like, w- when they are safely over it and it sticks and if anyone's able to join them. Uh, I did see that J. Crew um, is the latest kind of direct-to-consumer brand 
um, that has announced they're going to start selling their product on Amazon in addition to uh, selling direct to consumer. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, it's funny, you know, I've kind of over the years, I think I've pitched everyone on this and I've heard uh, more quote, I'll never saw on Amazon in quote, uh, uh, then I've heard, yes, I want to sell on Amazon. So it's kind of uh, gratifying to see these walls come crumbling down. Yeah, I, I will say, though, that what is interesting is at the moment, and, and they're the latest of a number of uh, brands that like at one point would have said, oh, we'll never be on Amazon, and now they're selling on Amazon. Um, the majority of those brands are doing it at a point of distress, right? And I think J. Crew's like pretty clearly a, a distressed brand that's that's looking for some, uh, for, you know, an infusion of life by potentially selling through these marketplaces. What, what we haven't seen yet are like, you know, companies that sold direct to consumer are like cooking with gas, growing really fast, and then are deciding like Amazon is the next uh, distribution point. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, when and if we get some of those examples as well. I think they're there. I think a lot of the DNVBs are on Amazon. They just don't make a big deal about it. Like these guys are doing it clearly to kind of send a message to their shareholders. That's like, we're doing something, but, um, you know, go look uh, at the mattress category on Amazon. I think you'd be surprised what, what you see there. And, um, you know, some of them, you know, Bonobos made a conscious decision not to, but you'll find all the mattress guys are there and, you know, other categories have uh, a lot of the, the, the direct consumer kind of guys are, are on Amazon. Oh, to be clear, I, I, I agree. And I think I know there's a bunch of uh, digitally native brands on Amazon. And in fact, I would argue it's the second most popular distribution channel besides direct to consumer for those young brands. Um, it's, it's much more popular than selling wholesale through traditional retailers. Uh, but I guess what I was more saying is the ones that were holdouts and, and for what, for a good or bad reason said initially, and we're not using Amazon as part of the strategy, like a Warby Parker or Bonobos or someone like that. Um, we we haven't yet seen one of those go, you know what? We're growing really fast. We're trying to reach more customers. And we were wrong about staying away from Amazon. We want to add Amazon. I, I just, I don't feel like I have a good example of that scenario yet. Um, yeah. yeah. If a listener thinks of one, uh, definitely drop us a line. Uh, the big news, though, in my little uh, corner of the advertising world is that Amazon is uh, piloting, uh, I think technically beta testing, a new program um, where they are offering a Amazon tracking pixel for, for brands uh, to put on all their owned properties so they can get a multi-channel, multi-touch attribution model. Uh, for all their their uh, Amazon media and understand like what what actual sales on Amazon are are occurring as a result of their various marketing activities. Yeah, it's kind of a, even a broader theme, and we've talked about it a lot on the show. I think we were we've been real early on this that you know we we kind of have said that this is going to be a kind of another billion dollar kind of pro offering for these guys, and if you track it out, it will be as big as Facebook by I think twenty twenty two. The the mainstream media has picked up on it, at least the business press. So there's been a lot of articles in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. A lot of them don't really add anything, um, but this was really pretty interesting. So I would just wanted to throw this quote out there to listeners. Um, they interviewed – New York Times had a piece, we'll link to it in the show notes, uh, talking about um, – you know, just Amazon moving in on the market. And they had a quote from Monica McGurk, uh, and she is uh, 
the Chief Revenue and E-Commerce Officer. That's a nice title at Kellogg's. Uh, the, so a CPG. Uh, and she said, we can reach the right consumer at the right time using their wealth of data to target. Other traditional digital platforms do not have the level of purchase data that Amazon has on their customers. So, you know, that's pretty powerful. And the same article had some quotes from Verizon and Geico and, and you know, so, so pretty interesting. Uh, and then even I think some car OEMs that are you know, Amazon with their wealth of data is starting to get some really interesting signals from people on where they are in the purchase funnel that I just don't think you get from other ad platforms. So it's going to be be interesting to see where Amazon takes this. And, and you know, I, I think we've predicted it's going to be a really big business. I think this is what takes Amazon from a trillion to the next, you know, several hundred billion dollars of market cap is, uh, you know, this this becomes another big pillar and a big business for them over time. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like it works really well as one of multiple revenue streams. I actually think that's a much healthier place to be than to be a um, a pure advertising-based business model like a Google or a Facebook in the long run. Um, but it is, you know, I, I remind people, like, for the majority of, of history, the majority of marketing has had really lame... KPIs and success criteria, right? Like most most marketers are their success criteria is how many people saw that the the marketing that they did, um, or at best, like how many people remembered my brand, or you know, unaided recall, or these kind of um, silly uh, synthetic success criteria. Uh, and then you know you've got a platform like Amazon where the success criteria is how much stuff you sold and what was the gross margin for the, the that incremental stuff you sold, right? And so you can really look at the spend on that platform through a much uh, clearer set of green eye shades than you can, you know, certainly that, that Super Bowl ad that you bought and even more so than you can the, like, top of funnel brand awareness uh, advertising that you might do on a platform like Facebook. And so it is... Uh, it is very different, and I, I do think marketers get kind of giddy about like having these more tangible um, ROI KPIs. You know, it, it is to me slightly different form of advertising. Like I do think there is some value in some top of funnel brand awareness advertising, uh, but I, I certainly think it's much more valuable on these platforms like Facebook, Google, Amazon, where you can you know way more accurately target it and just put the the content in front of an audience that's likely to want that content versus that ad you run on the Super Bowl that, you know, 99 out of 100 people have have no interest in your your uh, toenail fungus cream. Yeah. And if you recall, about a year ago, we had a Durrell Juvenile on there, and uh, that's episode 86. Uh, and one thing that really kind of stuck in my mind from that episode was they talked about being able to measure downstream from Amazon. So not only could they get to your point, the general mar margin of what they were selling on Amazon, they were advertising their products. Uh, and then they were seeing kind of a bump in sales at Target, Walmart, Costco, other places like that, where their products were, because, you know, as we've, you know, you have a little bit of a disagreement on this, but you know, there's survey data out there that shows that Amazon's become the product search engine. So, um, you know, you, you have an outsized impact by advertising on Amazon because not only are you going to sell more stuff on Amazon, there is downstream benefit um, out into the physical stores as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the slightly more mature platforms like Google and Facebook, they're actually spending a lot of time trying to come up with that 
that multi-channel attribution and tell you like how many people are showing up in a store as a result of their advertising. And and they have to use really imperfect methods to do that. Like they like upload your own point of sale sales data and we can match it up, you know, for the small percentage of your shoppers that that are are known uh, customers uh, when they buy stuff at the cash register. Um, you know, Amazon has has more than 400 grocery stores. Like you could imagine them adding an attribution model where, you know, they they told you how that that media you're buying on their platform drove traffic in Whole Foods stores, for example. Like there's lots of interesting things that you could you could see play out here. Um, and that does re- uh, remind me of one adjacent piece of news that I'll just briefly mention here. There, were, there was also an article that uh, got a lot of people slightly perturbed. Um, it, it came to light last week that Google had been um, buying personal data from credit card companies uh, to do some of this this uh, in-store attribution on, on behalf of their advertisers. Mm. And that's uh, so I guess that's just controversial because it's tracking you more and everyone's freaked out about all that. Yeah, it's it's you know, it's all the personalization fears and, you know, how how much of your personal behavior do you really want Google to know? Like they, you know, in their own ecosystem they know a ton and now they're, you know, one one gap that they have versus Amazon is Amazon sees stuff you buy, Google usually doesn't. Um and so more recently we've seen Google partner with a couple of big retailers like Walmart and Target um who for particular use cases will share their sales data with with Google, and now we're seeing that Google is is going out and buying you know um, credit card uh, sales data as well to kind of augment that database and and build that bigger case. Um, to, in my world, that wasn't shocking at all. Like, I mean, we've all known that that data was for sale, and so like when it became a big news item, you're like, oh, people are upset about that. Interesting. <laughs> and you guys are getting a ghost store. Have you been to that yet? Uh, it, so it's not open yet. Um, so they did just this week open a third ghost store, um, but they're all still in Seattle. So they're all in downtown Seattle. Uh, and the one that just opened two days ago, I have not been to yet. Um, what's interesting about it is that it's the biggest ghost store. So it's about 2,100 square feet, um, which is uh, an average size convenience store. It's not a huge store. Um, but why that's slightly interesting is... The very first ghost store uh, that's, you know, in in uh, the Day Zero building is um, 1,800 square feet. And so then they opened a second one in Seattle that was actually smaller. It was 1,450 square feet. And there are a bunch of uh, uh, pundits, or I, maybe I should say a few pundits that were like, ah, Amazon's having trouble with the technology and they're having trouble scaling it and they can't, they can't even make it work in an 1,800 square foot store. So they're having to downsize to these smaller stores. Um, which didn't seem very accurate to me at the time. And then, you know, two weeks later, after all that, that came out, like they opened the third store and what a shock, it's the biggest one, right? And it, it turns out more, there's a variety of factors you use to pick a, a store location and do a lease. And, you know, you, you have to take the size space that's available. That means your criteria. And sometimes they're going to be a little bigger. Sometimes they're going to be a little smaller. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they use the extra 300-ish square feet for. You know, will it just be more of the same, like more prepared food, or will they introduce a new area? Yeah, and the thing I'll be particularly curious to know, so the 18, the first store um, had a kitchen, and they prepared a lot of food in there, right? And so one of the nice, I think their number one selling skew is this BMA sandwich that's made on premise, and you can grab it and have it for your lunch. 
Um, the the second store does not have a kitchen, so presumably they're they're uh, driving uh, prepackaged sandwiches from the other store or from some co-packing facility somewhere. Um, and you know, you it's easy to imagine that the food's not going to be as fresh and that it's not quite as good an experience when the kitchen isn't connected to the store. And so I'll be curious if that third store has a kitchen again, or if they, you know, they're trying to have a centralized kitchen that feeds a number of stores. And I'll, you know, I'll certainly be curious to see how the, the Chicago store, when it opens, which they haven't, uh, I've been to the site, it's under construction. They've announced the location, but they haven't announced yet, like any details about what actual size it is or when it's scheduled to be open. So Hmm. I just have to uh, drive by occasionally. Do they, uh, the security run you off when they see you milling around outside? No, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally in the Willis Tower building, which used to be the Sears Tower. Um, so it's a, a pretty public space and it's, it's on the ground floor and, um, you know, just the windows are all newspapered off. So, you know, you can't, you can't see into it, but it's not like you see a lot of robust activity from the outside or guards or anything like that. Yeah. Well, cool. That's our, our Amazon news summary. And then I know uh, any geek worth their uh, their street cred is excited about next week. Uh, Jason, I know you and I are on pins and needles because it's going to be new iPhone week next week. What are you looking for? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, so I feel like a lot of the mystery is gone these days. It's, you know, Apple is amazing compared to most companies at keeping like these product development efforts under wraps. Um, but even for them, it's become next to impossible. And, you know, Apple in particular, like to manufacture a lot of the phones so they can ship them shortly after the announcement. So I feel like most of the major stuff has been leaked. Um, and, uh, you know, so now you watch the announcement to see like the 10% that was a surprise or, or that they got wrong in the leaks. Um, but based on what has been leaked, uh, it's not super exciting for me. It's, it's what like I think Apple has historically called kind of a S year where they increment the the previous products rather than a, a dramatic change like the iPhone 10 was uh, last year. Um, so I think it's it's going to be faster. Um, it's going to have a little more memory. You know, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but like I, one of my pain points is not that the phone isn't high enough performance or that I'm doing some uh, advanced math on the phone that that needs more horsepower. Uh, they're going to offer you and I both have the, the 10, they're going to offer a bigger screen size in the 10. Um, which, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Uh, I, uh, I possibly will get the bigger size just to have something more different, but what are, what are you thinking about? Yeah, I, I think, um, the operating system will probably be the big new thing. So the OS 12 will come out. Um, it's one of these, it's kind of like a, an S release itself. And there's going to be a lot of just kind of tuning and performance improvements and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of, there's not a lot of e-commerce stuff going on. You know, last time, uh, we, we had, let's see, we had Apple pay for webs. So that was a nice little nugget on the e-commerce side. Um, the only thing I can see that has a little bit of an e-commerce angle is some of the AR stuff is coming along. So this will be a, an iteration on AR kit. Uh, I know you've speculated about 3d cameras and, and are we going to get one of those? So, you know, I'll be watching for any surprises around that. Yeah. I think from a pure e-commerce standpoint, like, you know, the, the rear facing camera, the camera that you, you know, see that sees you when you're looking at the phone is 
a 3D camera in the in the iPhone 10. That's what they use for the Face ID. And there are a couple of retailers that kind of leverage that right away for some interesting e-commerce experiences. Warby Parker can scan your face and use that scan of their face to recommend frames specifically for you, which is pretty clever. Um, what would be really exciting is if that back camera ends up being a 3D camera at some point. I haven't seen that be a rumor yet for this phone, but it, that feels like the kind of thing that they could sneak in and that could be a surprise announcement. And if that were the case, you can imagine like all the furniture guys would be super excited. All the apparel guys would be excited because there's a lot of experiences that could be enabled um, when that that uh, camera can be used for, for really accurate measurements of where to place furniture or art or what size apparel to wear. Um, it's, uh, I'm with you. I like clearly like a bunch of the things I'm excited about are, are in uh, OS 12. Um, the, like, I, I hear that it's just going to perform way better. And so all, you know, even if you keep your old phone, your old phone's going to be snappier, uh, because it's, it's, uh, much more efficient. Um, one feature is the camera now has native QR scan, uh, code scanning. So, um, you know, for folks that are, are having to use a third party QR code scanner for any, any use case, you can, you can now use the built-in camera. So that is slightly commercy. Um, and this isn't commercy at all, but the 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 feature I'm most excited about in the phone, going back to Jason Cromudgeny, uh, they have a new feature called instant tuning. And what this lets you do is when you get some annoying notification on your phone that you never want to get again, today what you have to do is figure out what app made that notification, drill uh, 12 menus deep into the settings thing, scroll through your 3,000 apps to find that app, and figure out how to how to change notifications so that app doesn't um, notify you in the future. And in this new OS, they have this feature called instant tuning, which essentially means like you can click an X on the notification, and and that app will never notify you again. Which uh, I'm I'm eager for. Yeah, I love the feature where um, when you have to do you know, dual off that the, the, it'll automatically just kind of copy the code. So for you, and you can splat it somewhere that I, I spend a lot of time entering the, the stupid access codes constantly. Yeah. I, so I, I agree with you. I'm excited slash, I, I guess I, I more recently have mixed feelings. So the, the feature for folks that aren't super familiar with dual authentication. Um, so you type your password to get into some account and then as an extra security measure, they send a six-digit code to your mobile phone, and you have to type that six-digit code in. So that verifies that you both are holding the phone and have the the password. So you have you know two factors of authentication. Two-factor authentication is way more secure, and text messages is one of the common ways to do two-factor authentication. And so in OS 12, they're automating that. Like you no longer have to switch over to the text thing and and remember the six digit number to type it in like the the browser can literally like automatically detect the code from text messaging which so like you I'm excited about that comma all the security gurus have told me um that uh using the SMS text message for your second factor of authentication is next to worthless because it's so easy to fake your identity and hijack your SMS messages um, that the security professionals really don't recommend using SMS messaging as that, that second factor and two factor authentication. So yeah. So we're all just kind of like going through the motions. We're all doing more work. Makes me feel good though. No extra. I feel so much better. Exactly. 
Cool. Um, the there's rumors of some watch upgrades and iPads. Um, the the one thing that's interesting. So Apple's definitely doing something around more of a VR AR um, kind of a, a an area. They've got a bunch of patents. They're acquiring companies. I don't think we're going to see anything here, but there's a lot of rumors going around that they are working on a pair of, you know, of AR glasses of some kind. So that, that would be the big one more thing if there was going to be a surprise, I think, but I, I think that's further off. And of course they're working on a, you know, an automated car, but again, also far off. Yeah, no, totally. I, I like it's boring, but I probably will, uh, uh, depending on what they look like, get one of the new iPads. Like I think they're going to have a lot, smaller bezels and, and, uh, my iPads, uh, which I use fairly frequently are kind of long in the tooth and they, they definitely haven't been getting the, the same updates that the phones have. Uh, and I kind of want a pencil and don't have a, uh, I like the small format iPad, which they haven't uh, heretofore offered a pencil for. So if they make a smaller pro, which the speculation is that they will, uh, that could be an exciting upgrade for me. Awesome. Cool. A couple lightning round things just to make sure everyone saw some of these news items. Uh, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, has uh, been flirting around with some shoppable um, kind of options. And now they're going to roll out an app that really lets brands publish their catalog in an Instagram picture kind of oriented way. And then consumers can just shop using that app. Uh, So that's going to be interesting. Are are you hearing much from clients about the effectiveness of selling on Instagram? Uh, Over at ChannelVisor, we're not really hearing much about it, but maybe we're not talking to the right folks. It seems like it would be kind of really segmented in the fashion area, I would think. Yeah. So there are certain categories where uh, influencer marketing is is disproportionately effective. I would argue... Influencer marketing is getting more effective across a bunch of categories, but it, it you know, it, it's totally dominant in fashion and beauty. Um, and so definitely in those categories, people are excited about the richer commerce features. Um, Instagram is emerging as uh, kind of the darling of the social of the North American social media platforms for um, discovering uh, customers with buying intent. So it's kind of uh, taken over for Pinterest in that regard. Um, so I think people are excited about it, you know, comma, there's, there's certainly no one that I know of that's making a fortune on it yet, or, you know, is, um, you know, I don't think there's a grand slam case study just yet. Interesting. Uh, related to that influencer marketing thing though, um, uh, you know, I know all the listeners of the show know that we, we like to spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about the Kardashian family, um, so Kylie Jenner, who has a very successful cosmetics line, uh, has just announced, uh, that they are going to start distributing that product, which was originally a pure direct to consumer play, uh, through Ulta. Um, so through a wholesale channel. And that's interesting to me because there's this, there's this real, uh, important, um, divergence of influencer marketing. Like there's, uh, what I'll call traditional influencer marketing, or you go find these people that have a huge following, which Kylie certainly does. Uh, you know, Kim Kardashian certainly does. And you pay them a bunch of money to say something about your product. And that advertising is super expensive and increasingly ineffective, right? Because everyone knows that Kim Kardashian's a paid spokesperson for that lip balm and doesn't really have any personal affinity for that lip balm. And so that kind of 
paid mega influencer stuff I'm not very uh, excited about um, and have never particularly liked. But what's working much better are these influencers that are making their own products and tur- turning themselves into a brand. Um, and so uh, Kylie Cosmetics is certainly one of the best examples of that. Like arguably her her net worth has has surpassed some of her sisters because um, of, of this line. And so, you know, now this is an example of a digitally native vertical brand uh, that hit some critical mass and now they're expanding to other wholesale channels. And per our earlier conversation, kind of interesting that the next channel they chose was Ulta and not, for example, Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see. Do you know if it's going to be stores and online or, or just stores? Uh, so that is a good question. Uh, I would expect that it stores and online. It is absolutely true. There are some cosmetic brands that give distribution rights to Ulta's and Sephora's for in-store, but not online. So there is a, a, a different assortment that those retailers have online than offline. But I would, I think that's uh, more and more rare. I think, you know, Ulta generally doesn't want to sell anything in the stores that they're not allowed to also promote online. So I'm going to assume it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, in other kind of uh, non-Amazon news, there was an interesting kind of a kerfuffle with Walmart. So so Walmart acquired Moose Jaw back in the day, about a year ago, I guess now. Um, and then they just launched a kind of a store within a store concept. And, and what Walmart's doing here, uh, and this is quite classic Mark Laurie, uh, is um, you know they really want some of these kind of premium outdoor brands Um things that you would find at like an REI or a backcountry, but those brands say, you know, we don't want to sell on Walmart. So what they did is they acquired Moose Jaw, which is a place where all those brands sell. Then they opened up a Moose Jaw store within Walmart. Uh, well, some of the brands were having none of that. So several of them, uh, there's one called Black Diamond and a couple of others were like, no, we never agreed to sell our stuff on Walmart. Please take that down. So, uh, kind of a clever way of getting that product on on Walmart, but uh, I don't think the brands were really on board with it 100. percent Yeah, although I, I do think um, some of the reporting on it kind of misses the bigger point, right? Like, so there was this like I I don't know what the conversation was with Black Diamond and, and why Walmart thought they they could sell it, and then Black Diamond got upset and said they couldn't. Um, but what's what's interesting is that. Most of the brands that Moose Jaw sells are not on this premium portal on Walmart, right? Like, and very clearly, Walmart didn't try to sell them. So, like, it, you read these articles, and it's almost like, oh my gosh, they tried to take all the products they had permission to sell through Moose Jaw and sneak them onto the Walmart's Mart site. And that's not actually what happened. Um, if you go to Moose Jaw and you uh, moosejaw.com um, and you go to like uh, outdoor jackets. Um, you're going to see like 40 brands of jackets that they sell, including all the aspirational brands in the outdoor space. The You're going to see Patagonia, North Face, and um, uh, all of those those aspirational brands. Uh, if you go to the Moose Jaw Shop-In Shop on Walmart, which is, uh, to me, kind of awkwardly called the premium outdoor store, uh, and you, you go on outdoor, you're going to see like, two brands and one of them is the moose jaw house brand um so it's not like they tried to sell all that stuff and only black diamond stopped them like the majority of brands that moose jaw sells 
like clearly told Walmart, we don't, we, we don't intend to be part of that. And Walmart didn't put them on there. So I don't know what was different about black diamond that caused them to, to be, um, the subject of all, all these articles. Um, I, you know, I, th- I think the leveraging the, the brands that, that Walmart owns on their site, you know, is interesting. And, uh, but, but the shop and shop feels a little weird to me. Like the way you get to this Moose Jaw shop and shop on Walmart is you go to the guided navigation and you say, I want to shop for apparel. Uh, and then you say, you know, they're under the apparel, there's t- uh, a bunch of choices. One of them is outdoor apparel and a different one is premium outdoor apparel. And when you click the premium outdoor apparel, you get this like moose jaw curated selection, but it's, it's, you know, the much narrower assortment of moose jaw stuff that's allowed to be sold on Walmart. So, you know, it's a, it's potentially a better shopping experience, but do shoppers really want to self-select between average outdoor apparel and premium outdoor apparel? I'm not, I'm not so sure they do. Yeah. And yeah, I guess if you're intrigued by that stuff, you can go over to moose jaw. So it drives kind of, within family traffic. I, I don't know. It's, Hey, you know, you, you, you miss every time you don't take a swing. So uh, I think it's interesting to see them taking some swings at this stuff and trying to, you know, yeah. And they what, do what I, what I would do if I was them is I'd say to the brands, look, we're selling your stuff on Walmart. You misunderstand our customer, our online consumer wants your stuff. That that's the thing I've never understood. Why, why brands have such a like, Oh my God, I would never associate with Walmart. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. Um, and if I were Walmart, I'd be using the uh, search query data and things like that to be making the, those cases. Um, you know, again, like it to me, it's a little bit of a like you really start splitting hairs when you're like, oh, uh, selling via Amazon's not erosive to my brand, uh, but selling on Walmart is, and uh, selling through Jet maybe is, and selling through Moose Jaw, which is owned by Walmart, for sure isn't like the. The the lines just get really blurred there. Um and I have ten outlet stores. Yeah. And all by the way, all your stuff is like unauthorized versions of it are being sold on every marketplace in the world. So like yeah. And I saw last year's stuff at Costco. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like a little bit of that is people still acting like the old world economy and the new economy. Um I, I will agree with you. I do admire Walmart's uh seeming willingness to test. And one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, Moose Jaw ends up being a shop and shop that's in the Walmart URL. They've launched some other new brands like All's Well Home, which is their like premium home goods. And they launched that as a complete separate standalone site on its own URL. So you actually can't, All's Well is a Walmart invented brand that you can't buy on walmart.com, but you can buy it from the separate site. So clearly they're, you know, trying to figure out what the consumers want and, and uh, uh, do it that way. And I, like, I certainly think that's the right approach. Uh, so speaking of Walmart, like one of the big categories that, that uh, they're all in on and that there's been a bunch of news lately is, is uh, uh, Walmart, Target, and Par- Party City are all dramatically expanding their toy assortment as we start to approach holiday season and, of course, Toys R Us isn't in the market, so they're all fighting to to capture that that uh, additional market share that that used to be owned by by Toys R Us. So that's that'll be an interesting battle this holiday period. But we're seeing things like thirty percent more toy SKUs than they've carried in past years. Yeah, I've seen it. I spend a lot of time in my local Target and Walmart, and they're they're definitely kind of bulldozing certain areas and and putting up more shelves for toys. So it's going to be be interesting to see what what that looks like. 
Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Like you have a, a you taught me a unique use case. Like you're looking for these constrained toys, like the Star Wars toys uh, that go out of stock pretty quick. And you've always had this smart strategy to go to the less popular retailer. So when everyone's in line at Toys R Us, you were in line at Walmart. Um, now, if Walmart becomes a primary destination, like you know, it, it may be Party City that's your new new hookup for Star Wars yeah. toys. My my secret sauce is Kmart. There's one Kmart left open in. Uh, no joking, they always get a nice plentiful set of toys and no one else is in there but me. Nice. And a couple of little old ladies hanging out. <laughs> they're not in the Star Wars area. They're out there getting yarn and stuff. <laughs> I like it. Uh, they could knit you a Star Wars sweater. I may occasionally knock one over on my way to the Star Wars aisle. It's totally accidental. <laughs> I, I forgive you. Uh, so in other news, um, speaking of all these, these, um, uh, retail owned brands and what, what I call own brands, which in my mind is a evolution of what used to be called private label. Uh, one that really caught my interest is Kroger has a very successful brand called simple truth. And it's actually the, the largest best selling organic food brand in North America. Uh, and, uh, to my way of thinking very wisely, uh, Kroger has started to sell that simple truth brand uh, in China and Hong Kong on the various Tmall sites. Very cool. And to me, that's really smart. Like it, uh, it, it turns out it's really hard to be a retailer in one market and expand globally. Um, so, you know, Best Buy is a super popular concept in the U.S. and they open stores in China and it doesn't go very well. And Target's, you know, very popular in the U.S. and open stores in Canada doesn't go very well. Walmart in Brazil. There's tons of examples of uh, retailers that are very successful in one market. Um, Lidl in Germany trying to come to the U.S. And when they try to expand globally, uh, it, it's it's very difficult. Um but this new model of retailers having desirable owned product brands, you know, creates a new global expansion opportunity. It's much easier to expand your popular organics food brands internationally than it is your retail concept internationally. So I, I, uh, I, I don't think Kroger will be the last retailer we see that, you know, takes their their uh, popular own brand and try to use that as the new tip of their spear for their global expansion. Um, and hopefully, uh, that is a interesting, uh, topic to end on because it's happened again. We have run out of our allotted time. Uh, but as always, if we miss something or you want to continue the conversation, please jump on Facebook and you can correspond with us there. As always, if you enjoyed tonight's show, we sure would appreciate you jumping on the iTunes and giving us that five-star review. Uh, there are a number of e-commerce events coming up. So um, I think it's next week is the shop.org show in Las Vegas. So I will be there all week. I'm uh, doing a couple presentations. Um, so if uh, folks are interested, uh, uh, I would love to uh, catch up and say hello at shop.org. Um, and then uh, because I can never get enough of Las Vegas, I'll be going back to Las Vegas in October for grocery shop, which is a brand new show focused on on uh, food and uh, CPG e-commerce, which I'm pretty excited about. 
Awesome. We look forward to some detailed trip reports from those. Uh, and then we have a couple guests coming up and then we need to get some listener uh, questions out. So definitely jump on the Facebook. We'll be collecting some listener questions and try to work that in as we, we have a couple guests coming on the show to, to answer your burning questions about retail, e-commerce payments or whatever's on your mind. Terrific, Scott. Until next time, happy e-commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.